You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Now, if you haven't had the opportunity to stop into your local Interstate Batteries retail store and talk with a battery specialist, you need to do that because these guys are very knowledgeable about every kind of battery, hence the name Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera to your rangefinder, any battery that you need, these guys can help you find. Even if it's a specific, unique, one-off battery, these guys can help you find what you need. If you want to find out more information on Interstate Batteries, about their brand, about their history, about the company in general, and all the batteries they offer, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. Sure. Let's do this thing. There we go. All right, guys. Welcome back. Um... (coughs) Man, it's going to be a fun one today. 281, 10 points of edge feathering. Um, Man, this is just a, a, a let loose kind of kick back, reflect on some of January because January is a very <clears throat> important month for a lot of deer hunters and or land managers. Seasons still are open in, in um, several states, but a lot of seasons have closed. So we're in this like some people are just heavy after habitat improvements while other people are trying to still kill a deer yeah yep uh you know you can you can kind of test the temperature if you will on social media world when you see how many times we get tagged by people out doing habitat work versus hunting yeah and right now it's it's full-fledged habitat and i think most people that listen to this podcast are probably pretty into habitat management if they've sat through our hours and sermons and all that stuff that people want to call it and so uh They've you know, I, I'm happy that you guys are here once again. You know, 2020 was a great year for us, not to get too off topic, but there we continue to grow with with our audience and, and people that are listening. Um, and, you know, it's a great time uh, in, a, in, a, in a world that's kind of doom and gloom. It seems like a lot of people are down in the dumps. And uh, even in the world of habitat management with uh, declining species and different things, you know, it's a. It should be refreshing, though, to know that, and we're here to encourage you guys and help you guys avoid costly mistakes or mistakes that cost you a lot of uh, a lot of time. And and really, guys, we just we hear so many positive things from clients and listeners 
that it's just so encouraging to us to know that there is a, a group of people out there that are really doing some amazing work, whether it's a client or a listener, um, that are that have done some things that's just overall just doggone it. It's exciting and should and should be a major encouragement for all of us. And, yeah, and, and to, I guess, address that a little bit further, not everyone, even though people are having success, there's a lot of people out there, maybe this is the first time, you're listening or you're, you're, you're beginning to learn about all the things that you can do to improve stuff, you're sitting in a position where you're like, I, I'm not happy. I'm not satisfied with, with the property and what it's producing. Um, I just, I don't know what I don't know. And I'm just kind of downright frustrated. You welcome to a community that is about knowledge and education and then empowering you to go and actively manage a property and its resources, not not sit back and hope that next year's better or next year um, my neighbors won't do X and shoot small bucks. Like we're we're here to talk about ways that you can control your property, make it better. And there's a lot of people out there who listen, who are utilizing these techniques, especially the one right now we're going to talk about today, but utilizing these techniques and sharing some incredible results along their way, their journey. That's fun to be a part of. Absolutely. And I, so I'm going to share a, a, a recent text I got from a client this week. Send me a picture of a beautiful bobwhite quail um, in his hand. And he said, on my own farm. That's how he started, on my own farm. So there's a pride aspect oh, yeah. to doing stuff on your own farm and almost like a, a, a big garden where you get to manipulate and do things. And when nature flourishes... When you're eating uh, vine-ripe tomatoes that you grew, yeah, pretty awesome. So he says, on my own farm, deer have been bedding all over me since we did the TSI and the bedding thickets. We jump deer all over the place. At least four coveys live on us also, uh, along with a big group of turkeys roosting in the middle of the place. I appreciate all you guys have helped me with. I have more work to do on the bedding, but things are looking good. That's awesome. And, you know... Uh, so TSI on his yep. horse, it, I think I, I'm trying to remember. I think it was 160 acres, and uh, so it's mostly crop or warm season pasture. So he's got a lot of like open ground that's not not real habitat area or you wouldn't or areas you wouldn't that, expect deer bedding in it. Yeah, or, or quail are in it, or yeah. turkeys are in it on a on a regular basis. Now they are in the crop fields, but. Um, the thing about it is he's doing TSI in the in the timber, but he's also got bedding hot spots. Um, he's got some edge feathering to do, some invasive species removal. But overall, the guy's already seeing, seeing four coveys on 160 acres. That's mm-hmm. pretty good. That tells us the habitat's already, you know, it's not bad. Four coveys. I mean, if, yeah. that, if that's an average of 10 bird covey, that's 40 birds. Yeah. So You, you, can, you can grow bird population off that. And that, that came cool. the same day I had a conversation with another client that, uh, is really getting in. A guy I visited with this past spring. That so I can't take credit for all this, but um, I am very motivated for the fact that he's already seen this. So I'm I visited with him. I think it was April. It was right in the middle of all the lockdown stuff, mm-hmm. and we were unsure about right. going. And That's I right. pretty well slid in under late April. Yeah, yeah, uh, just slid out there real quick and came back. And um, he had thirty or forty pheasants living on him. And wow. having a multiple coveys of quail, and you're saying now, now, right now, not then, now. Where 
the area that he's got is is got a lot of old rank CRP, so mm-hmm. he's going to actually get some grazing in there to really try to add some disturbance, knock down silt, the rank grass, mm-hmm. but remove a bunch of smooth brome, maybe add a few uh, a few acres of a Milo food plot to try to hold all the birds on him more. And uh, but overall, like that guy's already getting the plan, getting the mindset of going okay. We, he, unlike a lot of us who are singing the blues, are going, I just hope to hear Bob White Quail whistle again. <laughs> yeah. He's got him with the fear of going, I don't want what's happening out east. Yeah. So yep. he's trying to capitalize and turn that ship before it ever really even starts mm-hmm. where he's at. So I got I got one yesterday, a text message from um, a client. They were breaking up. Oh, you've been there. Um, down in southern Oklahoma. Um, breaking out big... Bermuda pastures. It's, it's a weird mix of Bermuda and then some natives, but um, basically had him initially start with creating corridors. He sprayed them out last growing season, um, got got some flush of, of annual weeds and everything coming back, um, and then kind of going into year two of removal of Bermuda in those, in those corridors. But he's like, hey, I don't have to dormant season disc. Guess why? The hogs came in are working those corridors and rooting around in the corridors. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So he's like, kind of a good thing, but kind of a bad thing. He goes, I've got a, I've got a late season hunting opportunity. His son was successful in tagging a couple hogs, um, but they're following these corridors and going right up them, rooting around. So it's like, hey. So it's like once they removed the Bermuda and and that had died back, they could the hogs could actually get into the dirt and root around. And they they're finding something there. That huh. is um, pretty concentrated to those areas of corridor. So it would be interesting, again, to see that flush come back next year, um, grow back up, and create these corridors across a big, wide-open pasture. Interesting. But, um, just just being able to take note and see that like when, when things change from the norm, whatever your norm is in your area, generally speaking, you apply good, sound, Man, habitat management principles or techniques. Norm, norm is probably bad. <laughs> exactly. That's the point. Norm is bad uh, in most cases. So you do something different. Wildlife are going to react to them probably in a positive way. Yeah. And that's like, that's so refreshing. And it, We were at, I guess I was at a property in Texas the other day. And that gentleman, he was doing some fantastic things, um, but still wanted some some more structure and long-term planning. But what he had done so far, even though the, let's say, the long-term connectivity of the property, let's say, um, wasn't there, he was still sticking to sound natural resource management practices, and he was seeing uh, an incredible um, response from the, from the local wildlife there, too. And... and it just goes to show stick with things that make sense. And even if you don't have all your I's dotted and your T's crossed and whatnot on a, on a plan or a focus uh, for the future, if you do good things, likely it will yield good results. Even if it's maybe a little disconnected from this one wood block to the next, like start with the practice and go from there. Like once you see how wildlife react, it'll probably like it'll click some light bulbs off in your head and be like, Oh yeah, I'll just I'll just extend this. Yeah. Or I'll just connect. And, and this. that's kind of the hope with today's topic is or or bedding thickets or these micro clear cuts or invasive species removals that once you get a landowner it's almost like a once once uh once that shark 
tastes blood or smells it, they just want more of it. And oh, once yeah. a landowner experiences the benefits of a uh, of TSI and they see the wildlife utilize it, it's like, oh, I'm doing everything now. Like, and, and, I'm sold. And I think I think a lot of times that when when clients of ours go into we we visit with them and then they get the report and the maps, they go in and start doing the work. There's probably a little bit of a hesitation, and they're going. Is, is this, this really as good as they make it sound? Is this really going to change mm-hmm. from now to next year season like they said it would? Is this really going to bring back quail, or is this really going to steer the deer? And I mean, I, I'd put my name on it. I'd take it. Yeah. I, I, I'd say if you do the plan, I can, I can guarantee you you're going to see a change. Guarantee it. Promise, promise for positive results to come from executing the plan absolutely are you are you going to accomplish and and kill 160 inch deer every single year well i can't i can't guarantee that but i can guarantee that the deer will positively respond you'll probably have more activity you probably have better quality herd if you again follow all the the recommendations but I can't promise a 160 is going to be there every year, no. but but the wildlife will respond in a healthier way. Absolutely, and with I think that, that's where I'll take I'll people, take that to the bank. I mean, how many times have we had? But the bedding thickets are are the main thing where people are like, "Whoa, they that's reacted." Changed. Can I go make more of these? Where should I make more of these? Can or I expand? Can I expand these? them? Is it going to be? It's like, <laughs> sure, you can yeah. do that. Just know that if. If and that's why we don't like even the bedding or or food plots to be bigger than four acres because then it gets harder to define and have uh, defined bedding or defined feeding. Well, and that's a good that's a good point of hey, I know you experienced kind of had had to share this with some folks. I know you've experienced some fantastic results from these bedding thickets, but don't don't worship the bedding thicket. Know that there's a lot of other techniques out there that you need to still be doing that will complement what you've done already in a bedding thicket. So, you know, take that take that regeneration and that cover and now just come out, extend from it, and do the medium TSI like recommended. Yeah. And now your entire wood block is, is extremely valuable. But that compared with your bedding thicket, huge results. But yeah. you, that, that, it doesn't mean that you need to say, I just cut in two acres four will make it better yeah no no no, no that's not no. that's not how that's not i would how rather works. have two two acre bedding thickets than one five acre bedding thicket yeah. or one six acre bedding thicket for the simple fact that it's easier to congregate them or define where they're at and it's easier to make them move from one to the other what we don't want is deer to be in a thick cover or thick we thicket we want and i can't even get in there to hunt them i want daylight activity in an area that I can access. Yeah. And that usually means limiting those type of cuts, depending on the topography, the area, everything, to below three acres. Absolutely. And I, I know that um, anybody who's who's been on a farm, one of our farms, one of our clients' <laughs> farms, where there's been an appropriate amount of bedding thickets with edge feathering, with food plots laid out, with access in a... How do I say this? If somebody's been in that situation or have hunted a farm like that, it's almost like this is, I've never seen something like this. I've Mm -hmm. never experienced something like this. Mm -hmm. Like I can access my farm and I can hunt on a spot where I feel like my morning activity is amazing because they're around these thickets. Or in the evening, 
I've got deer on camera moving during daylight because I looped, I, I looped how many clients the food. we talk to that have like limited days to be out there yep. but high success. Yep. Where it's like I did I, I, I killed a doe with my son, I killed a couple of bucks, or my dad killed a buck and I killed a buck and I really didn't hunt as much as I used to. Yeah. Well voila, look at that. Yeah. There goes some geese right yeah, look there. At that. I like Flying that. Up. I was sitting inside this morning and uh looked outside <laughs> and while I'm inside my house, of course, that big half-circle window in my living yeah. room, I saw like seven geese fly right out of the treetops. Oh, I was looking weird. for my daughter to try to tell her, but they were gone in a flash. <clears throat> I mean, that happens all the time. That happens for us. And our farms mm-hmm. aren't even managed to the to the extent that they should because mm-hmm. our time. time is so limited. Time. We're but consulting everywhere. I, but it, it just, I don't know. I, I guess there's... With 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 January being a month full of information being out there, um, and a lot of people experiencing or doing habitat management projects, just want to reinforce: do the projects that make sense and will yield results. Like yeah. like what we what we're going to talk about today: edge feathering. You can't you can't buy it. It's not a product. Like it's yeah. it is just you're creating habitat you're not focusing on time doing piddly stuff like it's it's impactful yep and that's where we we want to encourage people um because again from go back and listen to podcasts from from clients or people who are putting this stuff into practice and hear it straight from the horse's mouth um you know they're they're the ones who are doing seeing the results that that we're talking about providing tons of examples for sound practices with great results absolutely um before we jump into it notice that you're wearing we did cover this in the fall and a little bit we covered it pre-fall so like august or september now we're covering it uh, and then we covered it a little bit during during the fall but it's totally unrelated to edge feathering but you're wearing yeah. the dan and recurves and i'm wearing the lacrosse lodestar or lodestar s- something like that uh, overall, we, we and the only reason we're covering this is because we wear boots almost every single day, unless we're in our house still working. But, um, what's your opinion on the recurve? Love them. You can see they're pretty worn. Yeah, <laughs> like not not like deteriorated, but just worn, broken. You, you can tell the leather has been through some briars. It's it's, got, it's Have been you around. Treated them yet at all? <laughs> nope. With okay, no no um, treatment of waterproofing, additional things. This is. Straight factory put on, laced up, done, and yeah. and they they've had a lot of miles on. You them never already. hunted in them. You hunted in the lacrosse. Yes, and yes. I can honestly, I, I I think the recurves are my favorite boot out of the box that I've ever worn. No, I I do not disagree with that at all. Extremely comfortable. They're broke in as soon as you get them. Yep. My biggest complaint might be the downfall of that boot is the fact that I don't think they're as durable as I would like. From I don't think they're going to last me as an everyday boot. They're going to last me two years, based on what I've seen so far. From the from the so so basically, there's, there's you're saying probably a trade off between out of the box, ready, broken, comfortable, flexible, got give to it, not super stiff leather that's going to last you a little bit longer. Lightweight, you're feeling, yeah, right. Lightweight, lighter weight boot. Um, I I could see that. I noticed that but mine, oof, just like the pronghorn, the the leather seems to be a little bit soft. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think if you're down south and you got a lot of green briars, so you, you're going to wear them out pretty, not quick, but 
because we got to, you know, as we say, too, we, we wear out boots probably quicker than a lot of people because we're out in briars every, almost every single day, at least multiple times a week. We're in some sort of vegetation. So Vegetation, but not only that, but just miles on, on uh, slopes and you're shifting around. Yeah. You're putting wear on different parts of the sole that doesn't necessarily get it. Yeah. And you're... You're, they're well used, but I, yep. I, I mean, I every time I do put my foot in it, it's like, ah, it's. Right. There's some boots, and I've I've worn plenty where I was like, Dad, gum it. Like you put your foot in there, and you're just like, you're a little disappointed. You're like, I really gotta lace it up. Like here we go, here's the day, with my foot in the boot. <laughs> it's yeah. like I, I just I'm not looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, but that's not the case with with these Those, overall. They're yeah. very comfortable. What what's I your, uh, I feel like you know since we started Landon Legacy in 2017. I think I've gone through four pairs of boots. So I've gone mm-hmm. through, and that's four pairs of every day. I wear some other boots for, like, I, I try to wear a certain boot when I'm chainsawing. I try to wear right. a certain boot when I'm hunting, or I do. Like, But consulting, everyday use real estate, <coughs> I've gone through four different pairs of boots. And the recur- recurve is my favorite ever, my yep. whole life. Um, my whole life, man. But I'm just not sure it's going to last me as long as I would like. Um, I'm wearing the lacrosse and they out of the box, stiffer, take a little bit of break in period. I think these will last longer than the lacrosse recurve, but I would, I'm sitting here in these lacrosse boots right now wishing I was in my recurves, (laughs) but I don't want to wear my recurves out like crazy. Yeah. There, the Lodestar has a more rigid sole, certainly on it. I think that would be, honestly, I I look at it like that would be a great hiking shoe. Um, but I just like, if I'm out and I don't know necessarily exactly what I'm going to get into, I like a taller boot that really goes above the ankle that much more just for that stability, um, of moving in, let's say unknown, unknown terrain that I might get myself into. But yeah, I, that's just a personal preference. Let's say. Yeah, Um, for sure. Well, so, you ready to jump in and start going through? We have 10 things about edge feathering to help you guys in your decisions or just key points. And, yes. and we say this because uh, we're seeing a lot of people uh, in the social media world post and, and are doing edge feathering. Mm-hmm. It's great. It, it almost feels like it's a, new t- it's a new strategy. Hey, if someone wants to say it's a fad, I hope it's a fad that just is everlasting I yeah don't, you know this is this is uh you know a phenomenal um thing to get yourself on board and if if you don't know what edge feathering is sit back we're going to explain it here this week but we're also going to direct you to youtube where you've i think adam you've yeah we you've got did, videos you did on there. a couple videos on edge yeah. feathering and we've gone back and shown results and if you need other pictures of it too check out social media as there's lots of pictures um on instagram uh, of or Facebook um, that we've shared edge feathering kind of ha- before after results. You know, you talk to various people, and there's all kinds of consulting out there and videos or or people that are putting out content to improve uh, habitat for wildlife. But it almost seems like the the two main things that I hear people stick with us as land and legacy they stick edge feathering and bedding thickets with us. That's like mm-hmm. and natives. Those are our things. Yep. It's like. <laughs> We didn't come up with the idea of edge feathering. We didn't no. come up with the idea of bedding thickets. We just came up with the idea of using a, a habitat uh, enhancement tool, project, practice that has been around for years and used it in a way to make the hunting better. I, I think I think of the origin of these things, right, we didn't create it. We simply 
said this is from a wildlife standpoint, and this is I think the difference from from let's say us to maybe others out there. We looked at what plant communities would grow and respond after that work is done, and then how the wildlife are going to react to that. Therefore, when they're going to use it and how it needs to be spaced or, or laid out across a property, it is based on the plant communities and the vegetation that will respond with these techniques. That's Absolutely. first and foremost what what we witnessed, and then we just put a name to it. Edge feathering, but that's been around for yeah for a long that, time. That, shoot, there's a lot of government, even even in the sector, the government sector, where the, with cost share opportunities, there's edge feathering projects. Yeah, yeah, yeah Even the sure. government knows it's great, and they screw up everything. <laughs> um, that was not political at all. <laughs> that was not. That doesn't at all. matter if it's Democrat or Republican. <laughs> Governments they always screw it up. And uh, anyway, and then you go betting thickets, which they call it temporary forest openings. Yeah, in the government, like there's cost share opportunities for temporary forest openings, and and basically they're just micro clear cuts. Yeah, and that's what you know we use those, and they're not only beneficial deer but so many other species. So we'll cover yeah. that today. But yeah, um, there seems to be a lot of people that are starting edge feather, which is so awesome. I I, I love it. it. It feels like an old tool that's coming back. It's mm-hmm. like an old it's an like old retro, school, right? Yeah. <clears throat> It's retro land management is we go. edge feathering. That's, well, and, and, but, but truthfully, it is, right? I mean, the, the, whole, the whole point of edge feathering, I know we'll talk about it in a couple of different points, is, is creating the transitional edge between an opening and then more mature, um, older timber. And so we are creating it. it. It's bringing it back. It's that retro thing. But it's doing I, it in a mechanical mean. 20 years from now... If people, if land management is still, people are still really into it, which I'm sure they will be, um, given Jesus isn't back here by then. But, Correct. Um, 20 years from now, I feel like edge feathering is one of those practices where every every cycle will come back going, maybe we shouldn't have got away from edge feathering. Maybe we shouldn't focus on some other fad that came out or some other product that came back. It's just like every 10 years we're going to circle back and say, Ah, uh, we should probably still stick to edge well, feathering. And, uh, and you know, we went through all those others, but we forgot about edge feathering. That's why I love the different techniques that we will recommend or use ourselves is the timeless capabilities of yeah. them, right? We're, we're, again, if if we didn't create anything, then then that means it's timeless, right? Yep. It's It's something that just, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And and I'm going to embrace that because that means that realizing, hey, God did it right when he created it. We just need to get it back to that point. So these techniques are going to get it back to timeless plant communities on a landscape that make an impact for wildlife. And I know that sounds way above and beyond when we're trying to discuss edge feathering. But if you don't have the backstory, the, the foundation of what it actually is, then then you may not grasp how important it is. Yeah, but I, th- I feel like a lot of people are doing edge feathering now because it's like, okay, I did my food plots, and now I'm going to step out beyond make my food plots better. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I need. To, uh, yeah, I either need to make my food plots better, or they said get in your timber, and I took one step out of my food plot, and I'm here. So let yeah. me work on the edge, and, well, and and it's it's a stepping stone, if you will. Um, outside of or going beyond what a lot of people will focus on for land management, and that's the food plot. So we're getting out of that. We're going into the edge, and there are 10 big reasons why you should be using that. 
and we're going to talk about them right now. Yeah. What, what do we have number one? Number one for all you deer hunters that maybe not be into the natives as much as some of us and the quail guys that listen. Um, number one is steering deer. Um, you know, how many times have you sat on a food plot that's bigger than a half acre and you've complained or thought, man, they're always on that other end. And or whether it's a road or a wind, you just can't, you just can't get there. You just can't get there. And you're like, I need to just, I need to just walk through it early in the afternoon and get to that back end and, and set up there. Well, then you still have the opportunity for them to come out and be on the, the end you were hunting. Like, you just don't have any way to 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 really steer them or know that they're going to be in a certain place. So I love the ability, basically, to go and say, <clears throat> on a food plot with, with, with a, a hard edge – Go and say, I'm hunting here. Here's all my observations. And instead of allowing that to continue to happen and wish that something, they're just going to automatically change where they come out, I'm going to force them. I'm going to say, you're actually going to now come out here because when I went and I mechanically cut the edge, the trees, I'm, I'm literally dropping trees along the edge of the food plot. I'm laying them in a fashion. I'm felling them in the direction that it's... it's essentially once it grows up and everything a a living edge it's like a boundary uh, a barrier along the edge and it's going to force them out closer to a tree stand where you have deer coming out we've termed or you utilize it in in management plans open edge feathering yeah or closed edge feathering closed is literally just laying them down purposeful felling purposefully laying them perpendicular to the food plot. I mean, excuse me, parallel to the food plot so that that blocks them where yeah. open is perpendicular and they can kind of walk through, a, let's say, and they've got a tree trunk on both sides and they're walking through. Yeah. It's an open lane. I basically have started telling landowners just so they can kind of understand is like closed edge feathering is cutting them and either if they're if they're leaning out because a lot of times if it's an older mm-hmm. field, they're, they're leaning. So you basically cut them and then push them kind of to where they line up it's like a 45 almost, degree pivot yeah you just spin them around push yep. them with the tractor whatever it may be but open edge feathering hopefully is in an area that like you can take that first 20 yards and just drop the trees and let them fall the way they want to where deer can still move through them very freely but you still get that major benefit to everything else we'll talk about yeah and, and so steering there is one one thing when we're on that point don't make it so narrow that that deer aren't going to want to walk through it. You have to give oh, that yeah. open edge yeah. feathering, um, quite, you know, you know, twenty to twenty to thirty yards wide, so they just will routinely do it and do it comfortably. Everyone's seen. I think I ba- basically, you think of like a dozer deck when a food plot gets cleared, it gets slammed up against, uh, you know, the edge of the timber, yep. and it's just left to the to deteriorate or whatever. That essentially is is a form of closed edge feathering because everything is just laid up there and they work around it. They don't go but through it. And it's so dense. And I think that's why a yeah. lot of people yeah, can yeah, yeah. have a negative co- connotation with with edge feathering is because they picture a dozer deck on the side of a field that every groundhog or coyote mm-hmm. den or that just that's not very piled up mess. That's not yeah. what we're creating. No. We're, we're creating an open, like movable, navigable way for deer and other game 
to be able to come in and out of food, pl- but just do it in a controlled fashion that makes it accessible for you. So there's hunting benefit. Yep. Just steering deer, period, point one, is the ability to make deer come out and go back into the timber and where you want them to. And the thing about it is you don't have to do the whole edge. Like if you <coughs> have defined bedding, let's say you've got 250 yards off the food plot, you've got a one-acre clear mm-hmm. cut, um, a, a bedding thicket, and you know that's where the deer are most likely coming from, but that's kind of catty-corner to the food plot to where it's not a straight east-to-west line. Maybe it's a little bit southwest of the food plot. Well, if you edge feather that first 50 yards – there's a pretty good chance they're going to swing low and make that path of least resistance and make it a closer walk than rather walking all the way up and around. And if you've laid it out appropriately, and when I say all the way around, I mean walk to the northwest and come yes. in on the northwest side of the food plot. Because if you're hunting it appropriately, you're probably hunting with the northwest or a west wind or to where it's making it a uh, easier path, a path of least resistance, and it's a shorter distance, but also the wind's but more in their favor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like honestly, when easy in an appropriate laid out property, when deer gets up from its bed, that is hopefully um, bedding where you want them. Right, I know where they're going to come into the field at. Yeah. Like, like let's just say it's four o'clock, and you're like, okay, deer are probably getting on their feet. I know where they're going to walk out at because I've appropriately edge feathered a field edge, and 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 I'm utilizing that and strictly, I have for, the, strictly I, for the like. I, again, if you're the deer hunter, you don't give a rip about plant communities and stuff like that. Still do this. Still do it because it's going to help you with your habitat and absolutely and hunting. Absolutely, and and I think that's the big thing about. Uh, just edge. It, it, it is one of those things, and I hope it is a. F- I hope it catches on like hinge cutting, because if I, yeah. I know if people start edge feathering, of course they're going to be like, "Whoa, this is this is, it's different." Sure. For some somebody who's watched nothing but outdoor television, it's very different than what they've probably seen, and and I can't think of a single outdoor television show where edge feathering has been done to where they're I'm, setting I'm on mentioned. a food plot and it's like, whoa, they edge feathered that. I don't see it. I don't. I None don't of them have done it. it. No. At least that they have. I haven't seen it. Yeah. So my apologies if you have, but they just don't do it. No. And I, and I think probably a part of that is because, um, you know, 20 yards along the edge of the food plot doesn't seem like a make or break deal. But in the grand scheme of things, it's... Well, and, incredibly and beneficial. The, the, the other aspect is a lot of people may not be hunting a food plot that is over half an acre, unless you're in a crop field. But my gosh, this is a this is a perfect opportunity to to say go to a farmer and say, hey, I want to help you along your field edges. Can yeah. I help you cut some trees back? And we'll get into the benefits there later on. But you can do it on a crop field too. And just yep. say, you know what, hey, we're, we're going to take this 100-acre crop field. I'm going to edge feather some pockets. I'm going to steer some deer. So bow hunting this thing isn't so dadgum difficult. Yeah. And I think if you're if you're in a crop field and you've done the like a CP38 program where you've got 30 yards of pollinators around that field and then you edge feather, you ooh, look out. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about, yeah, well, turkey poults, the amount of, of other game that can benefit from this technique is, is really incredible. Yeah. So what's, Number what's two, visibility two? barrier, two parts. Yes. So big thing being um, what's, what's 
incredibly beneficial from a hunting strategy, uh, or I guess both of them are, but one is when you're in your tree stand or blind and you've got an edge feathered, uh, an edge that's been, that's been feathered, and you're high enough that once you've cut those trees, let's say, you know, regrowth is 10 foot tall, um, you can still, and you're up 15, 20 foot, you can see over that edge. And, and so you can see if, if uh, you can see if there's deer on the other side. Let's just say that, let's just say you're on an edge, you're on a, the, the, the food plot edge that runs east to west, and on the north to south line, you can see uh, it's been edge feathered. And you can see 100 yards over and see that there's a buck trying to, he's working that edge. But because of edge feathering, he can't really see out into the food plot real well. So if you do grunt, you do call, he most likely has to come into the food plot to make sure of the fact that there's not a deer in there. He can't grow wings like the Red Bull commercial and flutter up and look and see. He literally has to come through where you edge feathered openly and give you that shot opportunity. Or come around on the side that's been closed edge feathered. So either way, he has to come into the food plot to really get a good look at what's going on. And unlike other times where if it's not been edge feathered and you see him in the timber and you grunt, he can look out there and be like, I don't see a deer in that food plot. I, 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 I would not say that stupid. 98% of food plots, if people are trying to call from them, if a deer is in the timber, just, and this is, again, like how bad habitat generally is that we see and the most hunters are hunting in, but 98% of them, a deer in a calling situation would be able to see from interior of the timber across an entire food plot. That isn't ideal from a hunting standpoint and a calling standpoint. Block the visual down low and make them commit to come and give you that shot opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. The other one would be, let's just use that that analogy of your setup on the east-to-west line and and the north-to-south line is just 50 yards away from you and let's say deer are out in the food plot and it's it's dark now and you know that deer have kind of moved over to the other edge of the food plot if you've edge feathered in front of your stand or in front of your blind you basically have a uh, a screen to block you as you can enter or exit the Mm -hmm. food plot Mm -hmm. most of the time it's exit you don't typically hunt your food plots in the mornings at least we don't and don't really advise it a lot because it doesn't really fit in our strategy Um, but you can slip down after dark and get out of there and have a lot more barrier uh, or structure to block you as you leave. So that's a huge one. Uh, Yeah, it it definitely is. Number three, improved improved food plot edge. Um, Man. I just, every every time, wherever we go, we either see trees left in food plots or the edges of small food plots – just even big not, ones if the trees are that's big. Tr- that's true, yeah. But but just the food plot edges are just always inferior. Like the 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 growth is always poor. They're that's always where, mediocre. That's where deer always come out, start browsing. Um, but but it, that's not the point. The point is the competition between sunlight, nutrients, and moisture with the bigger trees right adjacent to the edge and so edge under the drip line yeah edge feathering will will terminate those trees or lay them over if you're felling them or treating them um and it will open up the opportunity to reduce that competition get more sunlight and 
the annual weeds and everything that come back in along the edge that you cut are not going to be blocking or robbing as much nutrients. They're not going to have that root system that the trees had. Therefore, the edge of a food plot will not be mediocre. You can know that, hey, when I have this acre opening, I'm actually not just having good forage in three quarters of an acre. I have good forage in the full acre. And you're telling me that I can steer deer and make the hunting better? I don't understand why some people haven't adopted this, knowing, too, that my food plot is going to be improved. I'm fertilizing that edge, so I might as well try and get the most forage out of it. Yeah. So I I need to feather the edge. I just, I need to do that. Yeah. And, And a lot of times... I think fall food plots are way more popular than spring food plots. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that competition on the edge is way more severe with fall plantings as it is spring plantings. So that's why a lot of times you don't see big turnip bulbs or radishes right up under the drip line because here in the Midwest, right. Oct- you, you August, September is now probably our, our, our hottest and driest months, or yep. it has been the last four years. And we usually based on a five-year cycle of, of trying to pick what's been more beneficial. We say, let's look at the last five years. And right now, the last four years, September's been the driest month of it's been of, tough. of the year. And so <laughs> if that's the case, you can forget about having quality food plots under the drip line or on the edge of the food plot. So you might as well make it, instead of being a mediocre food plot, make it a phenomenal edge. Absolutely. Knowing the rest of the benefits, make it a great edge and reduce food plot competition. Because, again, you're putting just as much money to the edge of those food plots as you are the interior, but you're not getting the same return out of them yeah. from a forage base. So cut the edge. And it's and it's literally that simple. Yep. Cut it. Number four. four. We've four, got four. woody browse during the winter. So a lot of times, and this is why we'll prioritize, or when we talk about prioritizing your projects, and if, you, if you're if you a landowner who, you know, you bought the farm a couple of years ago, the first thing you did was food plots and then and then some trails, and uh, outside of that, you haven't really done anything else. If you go from food plots as your number one thing that you put your time and money into, and then number two being edge feathering, you would likely see deer bedding right off the food plot in that dense cover from your edge feathering. And that's one of the problems or one of the big questions we get with it. And so if you're prioritizing your projects, we would probably say bedding thickets or good cover, old field management, try to improve your cover and your bedding areas first and then do edge feathering. But uh, if you're one of those landowners who have done that, now you're trying to edge feather, um, think about it from this standpoint of we're just trying to always maximize our acres and put more food on the ground for more months out of the year and woody browse is one of those things that is food almost every single month of the year they're they're browsing on something regardless of how great your food plots are and so the more acres of browse that you can add the more deer you can hold the healthier your deer are and uh and then obviously with edge feathering the, the more cover that's available so anytime you imp- increase woody browse you increase food and cover, and so during the winter months, typically um, we're trying to we're trying to feed our deer during the most stressful time of the year for a lot of us. If you're down south, it's the middle of summer, but um, Midwest and North is probably late winter, early spring. And so, if you edge feather, 
Um, yeah, you may see them browsing a little bit on the uh, on, on the edge feathered areas, but that's probably peak performance time for your food plots. So they're probably going to take the ice cream plants and go with the easier food that's available and go with your food plot. But as that food plot starts to get browsed or kind of go a little bit dormant or get snow on it, that's when you'll see them really start working over your edge feathered areas. And uh, and that's when you've just got way more food available. So I think, and we haven't necessarily hit it as, as much or, or have it in this point. However, it is still definitely goes into the hunting technique of things. But when you do have ample woody browse on the edge, the amount of daylight activity that you will experience in that food plot is definitely greater because as deer get up from bedding interior of the woods, they come to the edge where it has grown up, provides a lot of protection from them because yep. that's what that's what the plant communities around there do. It's five, six, seven foot tall, but that means there's food available and accessible, and they're going to be browsing on that along the edge rather than staging deeper into the timber and then coming out at last light, they come to the edge, feed there because they have the cover still, the food, and then they're going to come into. But but most times, again, we talked about earlier, you can shoot into this edge feathering. You can you can see, you can create the shot opportunities. Um, so you're improving the amount of food forage in those acres around your food plot, and it's native food, natural. They need it many many months out of the year. Lots of woody browse there along the edge. Yeah, number five, rabbitat. Um, and we say rabbitat, that's a common term, but we're talking rodent small game habitat, mm-hmm. specifically mm-hmm. rabbits, rats, mice, those things that Someone's are. Someone's sitting there thinking, why, why do I give in a. Why the world do I care about, <laughs> that? Care about that? And so, um, you know, if you've listened to a couple podcasts back, Steel Before Steel, you don't hear us really advocate for trapping hardcore when habitat is so poor uh, prioritizing again let's fix the habitat long before we start breaking the traps out because um, we can make a lot more gain long term than we can uh, th- gain we can make more gain with a chainsaw than we can trapping long term gain and game through this rabbitat right so we we create shrubby cover we create this edge that is a lot of opportunities for the rodents and the rabbits to be able to come live there on a routine basis. And you can guarantee that, sure, if I have that, there's going to be some. That's probably the same ones I saw. The geese just. Yeah, the same same flock flew over. Flew right over. Um, But you're going to have those opportunities for for small game. And and a lot of people, just outside of just knowing that it's there and to kind of feed the predators that are around, you – you can also hunt them. Like that is another opportunity. I'm seeing a lot of people, a lot of the the family, um, getting them out outside of season, whether they're shed hunting or they're just trying to go and hunt and jump up some rabbits, or they have they know a guy who's got a couple beagles that come. Like yeah. you can increase recreational opportunities as well by edge feathering yeah. food plot edges. I mean, yeah. it, it's it's super important. Yeah, and uh, you know. If you're doing this, there is no coincidence that on on all the cameras we have on my family farm that the most active, well, daylight with deer is some of them that we've really edge feathered, but also nighttime pictures with rabbits. Yeah, is no coincidence that that's occurring on these food plots. Um, a lot more rabbits, and and I think actually we had a picture of a of a bobcat with a rabbit in its mouth the other day. Yeah. Um, in one of in one of these food plots that we've edge feathered, so. Um, 
you know, if you're managing for rabbits, you're all you're helping those. You're helping other prey species not be highly pressured it, buffer, by predators. Yeah, they're buffer, buffer prey. prey. Buffer so prey. if you can basically distract your coyotes and predators with the easier meals that are much more prevalent on the landscape through rabbits and rats and mice, then you don't have to worry about them going out in your big food plots or crop field chasing your deer herd and pressuring them and stressing them out. Um, so that's just how we handle it, and I think it Let works nature well. run its course yeah. from there. Yeah, but, but we got to have the habitat in place. Yeah. Now, number six, diversifying the farm. So uh, for a lot of guys that, that are in tim- big timbered areas down south and the Midwest, even in the northern part, you're, Northeast, you, there's certain time. parts of your farm that it, you probably go from big woods to food plots or crop fields, and you don't have a lot of that old field or that young forest. And this is a great way that you can diversify the farm by adding young forest or adding old field because let's just say you do edge feather it and you treat more of the stumps with herbicide not saying i probably would in many places but you you just promote forbs and grasses along the edge you're adding things there that you wouldn't be able to find in your food plot or wouldn't allow to grow in your food plot in the first place so you're just diversifying the farm and that means different types of insects different types of birds different types of even even big game possibly so uh, even if we go up to you know rough grouse, uh, yeah. not saying it's big game, but uh, if you've got mature mature trees and no young forest, it Nothing might be a between. little difficult to to grow rough grouse on that. There's a ton of podcasts that we've done about everything in the middle, right? Yeah. From if all you have from a habitat, and I'm air quoting that, um, I'm saying it kind of sarcastically, but literally your farm is a food plot or big timber. Um, you have nothing in between. You have no yeah. plant communities uh, of, of significance for a lot of the game that we're talking about. You, I'm you to, literally just need it. So just <laughs> trying to remember that feather. milkweed. Was it four? I think it was four-leafed milkweed that popped up in that edge feathering project that you and I did. Where was that at? Glady Cutoff Food Plot. It popped up. I think you did a video yeah, on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Four, I think it was four-leaf milkweed. And a, and a lot of... Um, Wild bergamot there on that edge, that yep. same edge, growing what was two years prior or at least a year prior, <laughs> timber. <laughs> Closed canopy. Yeah. Closed canopy timber. Yeah. So, so you never it, know what you're going to find. You'd be probably pretty shocked to see what grows up. So. Yep. yep. Um, number seven, increase the food during the summer. Yeah. Because just like you said, wild bergamot and... Uh, a lot of times, especially if you if you're able to burn it at some point, where you open up that canopy, burn off that leaf litter, you're going to see a lot of forbs most likely grow up ragweed, within the first couple ragweed, of years. It could rod, be blackberry, pokeweed, pokeweed being a big one, yep. um, or pokeberries, beggars some lice. Call it. Yeah, there's all kinds of food that will grow there that. You know, if it's if it's the edge of a crop field, edge of food plots, probably not going to grow out there in the middle because you're spraying herbicide or you're doing some sort of disturbance that's limiting the amount of native forbs. Or that it can may grow need up. some shade. Yeah, yeah. But you can bet there will be more food that deer will be wanting, requiring, needing along the edge, as well as the high quality food that's growing in the food plot. So you can almost offset some of the browse pressure that would be experienced there in the food plot and yeah. divert them with all the natural food that's growing along the edge. Yep. Number eight, turkey nesting in the spring. 
And I, I think, uh, you know, here in Missouri, our season's kind of just past peak breeding. And so with the last two weeks of April, first week of May, hopefully most of the breeding is happening early or mid-April. So as season progresses, we start getting a lot more of those mid-morning hunts where hens are going to nest. And so it's if you've on. got a beautiful food plot that's clover and then the hen's ready to go nest, it's like, well, if here's pretty good quality nesting habitat, we had it this past spring where multiple hens were nesting on our edge feathering project. So um, you're just increasing the amount of acres that is well, providing quality cover that turkeys can, can nest in and hopefully have a successful hatch. Yeah, two other things on that. If the hens are nesting there, they've they've led gobblers off the roost to those locations, and so that's where the gobblers are going to be. They're going to be in and around those areas where the hens were. They just hens got going to vanish on them, and right? they're going to be like, well, where'd she go? Blah, blah, blah. And start gobbling. That's, that's a great point uh, to be able to go and either call them to um, or call them from those areas where that are closer to edge feathering. But then in addition, if you've improved the edge – um, you've improved the food plot, so the quality, whether it is alfalfa or it is a, a perennial clover-type blend, you've got more insects growing, or not growing, but, but um, pollinating <laughs> yep. in and around those areas between the edge feathering and the, the blooming of, of those legumes. Like You have a lot of aspects going on that is a requirement for attracting turkeys, but then brood-rearing when those nests do hatch. For sure. A lot of things happening but edge feathering improves that for turkeys as well. Yep. Number nine, what do you escape cover for quail? So if you are in an area um, that has a quail, um, the woody escape cover is obviously crucial. If you've listened to any podcast with Kyle and Frank, you've probably heard them talk about woody escape cover and, and the importance of that during the, the fall and winter. But, uh, you know, if you've, if you've got an edge feathered food plot, if you've got tall trees going straight in food plot or gr- straight in crop trees, you don't have very much benefit for the quail. And so you need to edge feather. You need to cut that tree, cut those trees back, get that shrubby or young forest growth that's below 10 foot tall along the edge. That way you're providing something for the quail. And so if you're cutting a tree down, that structure, that treetop is now pretty good cover. And then if you've, if you've got stump sprouts um, popping up, then you've got, you know, trees replicating shrubs. So as long as you're managing that, you can have just uh, an, an unbelievable amount of habitat um, or woody escape cover on those field edges or food plot edges. Definitely. definitely. Number 10, better mass production. Sure. You know, we're cutting a lot of the, the tree species along the edge that may not be producing um, any value, Right. The values up in the canopy, um, giant tall trees, um, maybe it's elms, maybe it's hickories. Those are the ones that you're cutting and you're dropping down. Well, that helps to also free up maybe mass-producing trees such as red oaks, white oaks, growing along the edges of the food plot. So in addition to putting more woody browse on the ground, you're also freeing up and reducing competition around mass-producing trees. We're not saying don't cut any oaks, but oaks that don't produce or are inferior, unhealthy, absolutely cut those and involve that in your edge feathering. But ones that you know are, are pretty predictable as good producers, free them up. And edge feathering is a great way to be able to do that. Reduce stress around the, the crown of that tree, add more sunlight in, and you probably will experience a healthier tree in the years to come 
therefore more mass production out of that tree by cutting additional trees and doing edge feathering. Yeah, it wouldn't be fair if we mentioned all the positives and didn't mention some of the common negatives that people say about edge feathering. So a couple of the most common negatives you'll hear is it's not very aesthetically pleasing because it's kind of a, you know, there's trees down. Well, if you're managing your farm and fallen trees or trees down or shrubs are, or uh, young forest is not pretty to your eye, it's not a habitat issue. It's not a an issue that can be fixed on the landscape. It's an issue that needs to be fixed between your ears. It's a it's a mindset shift. And and honestly, there's a podcast. There's a gentleman I need to have on the podcast regarding that. But it it is uh, it, you have to be okay with it because you have to know that that down tree is is providing all these 10 benefits. Yeah. And you have to be able to accept the fact that it may not be the most pretty, but but it is 100% functional and um, increases the opportunities for your goals to come true. Like, for sure. You got to get, there's give and take there. Yeah. Has to be. Yeah. Uh, the other big one being uh, predator corridors. Uh, anytime you're managing in linear shapes you're just creating easy meals for predators uh and i think a lot of times that <laughs> that's a little bit hard for me to grasp because basic ecology tells us that imp- increased amount of prey species will lead to increased amount of predator species and so anytime you're doing something on your farm that's going to benefit the prey you should know that if it benefits the prey species so much that predators will likely follow and so if you can get past that and go, well, why would I create, why would I edge feathers so that, so I can create, you know, this habitat for turkeys and nests when coyotes now are going to find the easy meal? Well, I can assure you that if you're not doing anything to improve the nesting habitat, then you're not helping the prey species at all. So let's, yeah, compare and contrast that real quick. If, if you're not doing edge feathering, you're probably not cutting inside the timber. So, so adequate nesting cover just isn't really present but where's where's the area where there is the most sunlight that would be coming through would be on the edge of a field where hopefully that would you know maybe be the most uh, opportune area for a nest to be placed because there is half light coming through based on being on the along the edge but there's not there's it's not adequate as is so a predator that they're always going to travel the edge so then there's not great habitat so you need to be able to, um, <laughs> what is that? Uh, Eurasian collared doves. Oh, yeah, they sure are. oak right above us. Um, so you need to be able to. Um, Non-native. <laughs> <laughs> you need to be able to feather that edge so you build out the cover and give those species the ability to escape and, and actually hide in good quality cover Still knowing, regardless, it's an edge. Predators are going to be moving along the edge. Give them what they need. Know that with proper escape cover, as a as a predator as a prey, they will survive. Yeah, or higher percentage will survive. Don't be a deadbeat land manager. Get out and edge feather. <laughs> yeah. Um, get out and put in some young forest. I think that's one of the things too that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> as land managers, we try to pride ourselves on all the things that we've done. You see it a lot in social media. Where it's like, oh, I did all this work to, to harvest this deer. I put out this, 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 or I did this. A lot of times you don't ever see edge feathering listed. Mm-hmm. 
And mm-hmm. so from now on, hopefully you guys are listening. If you stuck around with us this long, you're going to be motivated to do some edge feathering. And you can be like, man, I'm, I'm doing edge feathering. I'm doing young forest creation. I'm invasive species removal. I'm prairie restoration. Man, you're, you're doing something for the deer that even people that may not be into hunting can get behind and support because you're managing the land the way it was intended. So totally. Guys, we thank you so much for listening this week. We have some exciting stuff coming. Yeah. So be listening for the next couple weeks of podcasts. We'll be releasing some some fun new opportunities with Land and Legacy that you guys want to be um, a part of, or we hope. So be watching, listening on all channels. We appreciate you guys listening and following along. We'll catch you next week. Yep. Yeah.